You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Hello and welcome to the Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling. I'm so glad you joined me today. I am grateful for all the good feedback I've been getting from you listeners who enjoy listening to the Way Home while you're uh, in the car, in the carpool line, picking up your kids or doing some chores around the house or exercising. If you enjoy the Way Home, would you go to iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts and would you be so kind as to write a review that just lets other people know about the podcast and if you do that and then you go to my website danieldarling.com and go to the contact page and send me a copy of that review I will send you a free copy of my latest book Away With Words a free signed copy just as a as a thank you for doing that well today you are not going to be disappointed by who joins me. Can you believe Michael W. Smith is going to be on this podcast? I am absolutely overjoyed. I've been wanting to meet him for a long time. Listen, I'm a child of the 90s, and um, I was in high school in the 90s. Michael W. Smith's album, The First Decade, was my favorite album. I wore that thing out. Uh, That's back when we had CDs, if you remember. My kids don't even know what those things are. Uh, you could play any one of those songs, uh, whether my, my place in this world, the Kentucky Rose or dream of me or friends are friends forever. And I can be transported back to, uh, a time and a place in the Chicago area, uh, after a basketball game or hanging out with friends, uh, amazing. The power of music, uh, Smith is such a really great person. He, uh, has had enormous success uh, around the world, and yet he has really never carried himself uh, as kind of a big deal. Just very humble, loves Jesus, loves the Lord, loves serving the church. Uh, He uh, has written a lot of worship music for the church. He's got a great story. Um, He joins me to talk about a few things. First of all, he's written a book about his father called The Way of the Father, and just how much his dad really shaped him. Uh, in incredible ways growing up there in West Virginia. He talks to me also about packing all of his stuff and taking the big leap of faith to come to Nashville because he felt God calling him to a music career. He talks about getting his start playing uh, backup for Amy Grant and then he then some of his relationships with people like George H.W. Bush, Billy Graham, um, our current Tennessee governor, Bill Lee. And then he's very vulnerable about a time in his life when he uh, made some bad choices and the Lord got a hold of him and turned him around uh, when he was younger. So I think you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation with one of my favorite people in the world, Michael W. Smith. Well, glad to have on the podcast, uh, Michael W. Smith. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining me today. Uh, this is an You're honor. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to glad to be a part. Thanks. So I wanted to have you on because I have your I have your brand new book with me, uh, The Way of the Father, which looks really yeah. great, by the way. And uh, I've listened to to the album as well. And so 
uh, glad to talk to you about that. But man, I don't know where to start other than um, to tell you that I've been a huge fan of your music for a long time. When I was in high school in the 90s, uh, the first decade album, I wore that thing out. In fact, wow, I could, yeah. I, I will play it sometimes in our house with my kids and I can like remember back where I was, you know, in the Chicago, mm-hmm. I grew up in the Chicago area and remember what friends I was hanging out with and stuff. Amazing how music does that uh, for you. But anyway, I just wanted to say I've been a huge fan for a long time. So thank you for doing this. You are so welcome. I remember that record. Well, Kentucky Rose on that record. It is. I yeah, Kentucky so. Rose is on there. <laughs> uh, I, I I love all those all those songs. Uh, of course, Friends Are Friends Forever is is your famous one. I've heard you tell the story of writing that. So I want to just start maybe back in the beginning. You you grew up in West Virginia, right? And I did. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that. I know I've heard you in other interviews say that you had kind of two tracks in life, right? You wanted to be play baseball, but you also had the music track. Was there kind of time in your life where you felt like, okay, the Lord's calling me down this path and not this other one? Well, yeah, I mean, it was sports all growing up. It was baseball. I was a pretty good baseball player because my dad was mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, but I was also writing songs at five, six, and seven, which I'd never played those songs for you. They were awful. Just the fact that I was, <laughs> I was creating some stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. I was playing baseball, but I was being around on the piano. And then 15 years of age is the first time that I didn't make the All-Stars. Mm. And it's and it's the second time that I only walked down the aisle at my church and went to my pastor, Stan Franklin, and said, hey, Stan, I think God is calling me into this world of music. Mm. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know how to get there. Would you lay hands on me and pray for me? And he did. Mm. So that was a pivotal moment there, really, 15 years of age when I knew that this was what I was called to do. Was there... Uh... You know, as, as you got into music, it's interesting that, you know, that your pastor was able to recognize that too and pray over you. And you saw it as a calling at that young age, which is so great. Um, when you kind of packed your bags to come to Nashville, obviously music was probably different then. I don't know than it is now in terms of getting noticed and all that, but uh, obviously had to be kind of a big leap of faith for you, right? To, to, to move here. Yeah, it was it was a big move. My mom, you know, my mom couldn't watch me drive off. She started crying. And I knew when I left, I knew I was not coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I came back every three months to get some money. I was broke, you know, yeah. uh, but I knew that that's, yeah, that's, that that's where I belonged. I'd send a tape in some material and they, you know, and I saw I went and get, had an interview and they loved my music. They didn't like my lyrics, but they thought there was some possibilities there. Yeah. So I came and, I did all the stuff I needed to do to try to make a living. I waited tables, worked at Coca-Cola, planted shrubs. I did it all, you know, and yeah. And then, you know, and then I went through this four year bout of just bad choices from 75 to 79. Gosh, I've written a lot about that mm-hmm. in, in the book, um, books over the years. And then, I, you know, I had this massive encounter with the Lord in 79. It changed my life. You know, really haven't been the same since then. But then I just started writing songs. And then all of a sudden I find, my, find myself in a room with Amy Grant <laughs> writing songs for the age to age record, you know. And at that point, thing, it kind of just kind of took off, you know. And so I couldn't have orchestrated any of that. So all, it all is a bit of a dream if I, when I go back and start to recollect of how yeah. all that kind of came together. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So, where, I'm curious when you're growing up, were there musical influences on you? People you were listening to 
Oh, you said, I want, I want to be like them or I want to be like them. Or was there, was there one or two artists? Was there a bunch of artists that kind of shaped you early on? Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, the Beatles, you mm-hmm. know, the, the hooks were just endless, you know, big, huge Elton John fan, Billy Joel, Kansas, Andre Crouch, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, yeah. all the early music stuff. But I remember, matter of fact, I talk about it in the Jesus music documentary coming out October one, which I'm real excited about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment in the movie when I talk about going to this little record bin, it was like in a consignment shop in my hometown of Canova, West Virginia. And somehow this record, which was the very first Maranatha record from Calvary that came out, it's a white cover with this big red Maranatha sign on it. The name of it is the everlasting living Jesus music concert. And I, turn the record over and see all these songs about Jesus and all these people with long hair. And I went, that's what I want to do. I remember that moment. That's what I want to do. Especially when I took it home and turned it on. Yeah. And, well, in, in the music, the Christian music industry was sort of in its uh, infancy at that point, oh, right? Definitely. Like it hadn't it, taken off like now. So that's what's beautiful about the film. It really tells you, that really, and, and people are going to be shocked because I would say 99% of people who listen to Christian music have no idea how this whole thing got launched. You know, and from Vietnam and the civil unrest, people were doing LSD and the whole drug revolution, the 60s, and then, you know, that turned to 70 and all of a sudden, you know, all these heroes died, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix. And then all of a sudden they found about, about this guy preaching at Calvary Chapel to the hippies. Mm. Yeah. And that's how the whole thing kind of just launched. It's crazy. Yeah. It's really great to, 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 to really find out how it all happened. And then, the, then you got love song and then you've, here comes Andre Crouch and honey tree and second chapter of acts, which I had all those records all mm. through the seventies and Phil Kagi and gosh, just the, I mean, the list goes on, you know, yeah. Crazy. I mean, uh, you know, at, at that point there wasn't, you know, I think in Nashville, we have like five Christian music stations that play music and, you know, the, the opportunities I'm sure when you were beginning, were not as, as wide as they are now for Christian artists, right? Oh, not, not at all. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just, it, it, it was what it was. I mean, just there, you know, when I came to Nashville, it was mainly just was country music. Mm-hmm. That's what it really was. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think Word had just moved here from Waco or they were just getting ready to move here. Sparrow had not moved from California. But I, I, I came to Nashville. I probably belonged in L.A. or New York, honestly, in terms of musically. But I came here because I had a friend here who was a session musician, Shane Keister, who was really, really popular. And then this guy named Randy Cox, who was a publisher, who he's the one that I sent my resume to and the one I had an interview with. And he's the mm-hmm. one who said, you know what, I think – you got something and I think mm. you should consider moving here. And I did. That was, that was 19, 1978, believe it or not. 1978. Yeah. So I was born in 78, but I, I won't mention that. <laughs> um, um, I love it. <clears throat> but uh, was there a moment, Michael, that you felt like, okay, I made it. Uh, this, this is something I can do for my life, uh, my calling. Like, you know, was there a, an album? Was there an award? Was there something where you're like, okay, uh, or was it maybe a series of moments? I'm, I'm just curious yeah, about that. Yeah, I think probably when I found myself in the studio cutting my first record, the Michael W. Mm-hmm. Smith Project. I mean, I think that moment was going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe 
I'm in a recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee, literally making a record. Mm. And then probably the next moment was when I heard one of those songs on the radio. Yeah. And yeah. Then, 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 then you're, you're riding with Amy and then all of a sudden you're on the road with Amy and there's all these moments mm. going, Oh my gosh, this thing is kind of like a rocket ship. It's thing. I'm just sort of hanging on, you know? Um, I mean, I was always confident. I don't think in a prideful way. I just, I just say, Hey, this is what I'm called to do. Am I going to do it for five years? Am I going to do it for 10? Am mm. I going to do it for 30? I mean, I just, yeah. You know, I never could look that far ahead. I just, I just thought, I just want to keep getting better at my craft. I just want to tell people about Jesus through my music, you know, and here we are 30 now, almost 39 years later, which is mind boggling. That's amazing. It's insane. It really is. So you talk a lot in this book and in other books, and you've been pretty public about it in in interviews I've listened to with you that you had a kind of a time in your life where, and you just alluded to that, where you kind of made some bad choices and it was kind of a crossroads for you in terms of following Christ. I love how you talk about how your parents kind of walked you through that and prayed you through that. Can you, can you speak a little bit of, uh, of that moment? Yeah. It's just 75 to 79. I was just, it was drugs and all that. It's crazy. You know, I'd had a massive encounter with Jesus when I was 10, I had a massive encounter with the Holy spirit when I was 13. I was a Jesus freak growing up, big wooden mm-hmm. cross around my neck. I mean, I was, and listening to all this music I previously was telling you about. And then, I got deceived. I always say, if you could call Satan a name, you, my favorite name for him, he's the great deceiver. And mm. I, just got, I got deceived. I started hanging out with the wrong people. I started making bad choices. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm in a pit, and I cannot get out. And I, hit, I had a near drug overdose moment one night, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And this is not the call of my life. And I, I am destined for something for the kingdom. That's what I kept thinking about. And so, you know, that's when I began to pray that God would do whatever he had to do to get my attention, break my legs, car wreck, just don't kill me. And I knew my mom and dad were on their knees praying for me every day. Mm. And I had the meltdown in November 79, I hit rock bottom and convulsed and shook and cried for three and a half hours. And then knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Abba was laying on my kitchen floor with me with his arm around me. And I haven't mm-hmm. been, have been the same since that day. I'm convinced that moment happened because of the prayers of my mom and dad. Mm. That's amazing. Um, this book is the, the way of the father. Uh, you really admire your father and uh, had a great relationship with your father. Talk about your dad. Yeah. Like my dad's, his glass was always half full. Mm. <laughs> He smiled and laughed every day. He was the kindest man I've ever known in my life who had to be my dad. He was extraordinary. I know he had his faults, you know, but I just didn't see very many of them. He served the homeless community when they moved to Nashville. He was a deacon. He was a hard worker. You know, if you were sick, he went to work. Came from that great generation of just the work ethic and then loving his kids, which was being my I had one sibling, Kimberly, and watching him love my mom. Mm-hmm. And watching him love his community and serve and serve and serve. And so I just aspired to be like my dad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just incredible. He got dementia. Oh, man, it's crazy. And, you know, but he still knew who I was down to the final day. It's crazy. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that was November 15. And I knew one day I knew when he, and I knew like in 11 when he started to get dementia and as, and as I watched him consistently be consistent with his faith walk, I knew, I knew for years I would write a book about my dad, but when he got dementia, I start I started recollecting all these stories and all these things about my dad. And then obviously I kept thinking, you know, I, I grieved for a while and I didn't feel like I'd write it. And then, 2020 came along and going, you know what? This is a great year to write a book <laughs> mm. in the yeah. middle of a, in the middle of a quote unquote pandemic, you know. And I thought maybe this is the right time. I think I can I think I can go there and I think I can start writing this stuff down. And I did. And um had a great writer help me do it. Robert Nolan, incredible, helped me really piece it, you know, pull it all together. I'm really happy with it. But it's but I wrote the book. Yeah, I wanted to tell all these stories about my dad, but I wrote the book because my dad taught me a lot of what God is like. And I really believe that. You you have a word too for, you know, I, I had a great, I have a great father as well. And uh, when I, when I hear you talk about your dad, I think about my dad, just faithful and such a good man. But I know there's, I have a lot of friends and you probably do too, that never really had a great relationship with their dad, didn't have a great father. What's a word of encouragement for folks who don't have the experience that you and I had. Well, and that was one concern about doing the book. Cause I, I mm-hmm. knew there would be people reading this book that didn't have a dad like you or like me. You know what? I, I I'm not gonna, I, I can't sit. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know people's pain. I don't, I just, I don't have a clue. I just know that whatever the stuff that's going on with your dad or your mom, I think God can turn it for the good. I think God can father you. I mean, my pastor, Don Fento, who's mentored me for 39 years, had a horrific upbringing, but he's extraordinary. He just turned the corner. He, you know, he didn't do the victim thing. He somehow, somehow allowed God to father him. And I mentioned my mom in the book. I mean, my mom's a prime example of talking about, talking about horrific. I mean, she was eight years old and her three younger siblings and my real grandmother told them to get out of the car and walk the final block home. I don't know if they... Mm picked him up from school or whatever. She drove off in her car. Never. She never came back. Totally abandoned her four kids. And my mom ate the oldest. So my mom could have been bitter for the rest of her life. And my mom turned a corner. She just, she, I think she fell in love with Jesus. And she, I remember us talking about it. You know, my mom just went to heaven crazy 30 days ago. Just Mm. in wild. Um, Watched her take her last breath. Um, but I remember my mom and I would talk about that and she would say, well, you know what? I just knew when I was going to marry my high school sweetheart, which was my dad, you know, they were 16 and 14, uh, when they were, when they kind of started dating and they got married five, six years later, I remember her telling me going, I'll never let that happen to my family if I have children. And I think the beautiful thing about my mom, I don't talk about it in the book. I almost kind of wish I did. And I'll tell you the story because it's worth telling. It was years later that my Aunt Pat passed away. And I went to the funeral. I was 20 years old. This is before, I, I think this is before I'd moved to Nashville. Or I'd just moved to Nashville and I met my mom in Kentucky at the, at the funeral. Mm. My, real, my real grandmother was there. And I'd never, I'd never met her. And my mom had not seen my real grandma, her mom. She had not seen her since she abandoned him. Wow. And I watched my mom just be cordial and very friendly to my grandmother. Me, on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) 
I wanted to like just tell her what I thought, and I did. Yeah, I bit, I bit my lip. I, you know, I wanted to say, "Do you know what? You, can you? How could you do that to your mm. kid?" I wanted to say that, but I didn't. But you know what? I think my mom had forgiven her mom a long time ago, and that's why she didn't carry this stuff. She just forgave her, you know. And then I re- and then the crazy thing was three years after that funeral, my real grandmother called my mom and asked her for her forgiveness. Wow. And That's my mom, amazing. And my, and my mom said, Mom, I forgave you a long time ago. Wow. Crazy, isn't That's it? That's amazing. That is. <laughs> and and now obviously as a as a father yourself and a grandfather, you, you know, do you th- I'm sure you th- you think about that in the way that you try to father your children and be a grandfather as well, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I've learned, a, I learned a lot about being a father from my dad. And, and, you know, and I tell people I have a really good friend. I won't mention his name. He's a very famous guy that we'd all know, but he just said, cause he didn't have a good father and he, and he's actually a great father. And so he's just said, so we're going to break the mold for whatever that curse was. It is, it's broken. It's gone. This is a new, this is a new lineage, whatever you want to call it, of what mm-hmm. my family's going to be like for generations if the Lord tarries. And and to watch him just love his kids when he had not, didn't have a good mom or a good dad. I watch him father now, and it's pretty extraordinary. Hello, friends. I just want to tell you about a really new partnership uh, that we have developed with an amazing company called Canopy. Now, I don't know about you, but as a parent, I find it increasingly difficult to monitor my children's internet consumption with all the devices and computers. And how do you balance safety on the internet in terms of objectionable content, pornography, and things that we don't want them to see with speed and use of the internet for things that they need, like their homework, getting a hold of them. My oldest one is driving and I want to be able to her to have a way to get a hold of me. How do you do that well? Sometimes it feels like you have to prioritize either speed and accuracy and accessibility or safety. Well, my friends at Canopy have developed this really neat tool that they beta tested in Israel. And it's so good, they brought it over to the United States. And it uses this proprietary technology uh, using artificial intelligence to block objectionable images, but not always necessarily websites. And so how this works is that even on your their phones, if someone texts them something objectionable or they're going to a website that they need to go to, but there's objectionable images, it doesn't block the website, but it'll block the, the images from coming through. And it works uh, in multiple apps that are on their phone in ways that a lot of other filters don't. It's a great, great tool. And if you are a Way Home listener, you can go to canopy.us slash wayhome. That's canopy.us slash wayhome, C-A-N-O-P-Y dot U-S slash wayhome. And you can get a special discount. Your first 30 days free and 20% off of Canopy for life. So you want to do that. Go to canopy.us slash wayhome and check this out. It's a great tool that I know you will use and, and be thankful for as a parent. I heard you say, I forget the conversation you were, you, you, I would listen to that you, you did an uh, interview may have been with Paula Ferris, uh, my friend, Paula Ferris, who had you on her podcast, but you said something that I have, haven't forgotten. You said that you survived success. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's true. I mean, I think there's, 
And I think maybe in the in the kind of job that I have, you become successful and you're you're a quote unquote celebrity. I don't call I don't call myself that. I know I'm perceived. I think you are. <laughs> well, okay. I'm perceived as that. And to watch what celebrity has done to people over the years, if you just look mm. at the history of what celebrity and what fame can do to people, not 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 just ruin their lives, but they die, you know. Mm. Uh the you know, not everyone, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. And just to go to deal with all that sort of people tell you how great you are all the time. And then all of a sudden you start believing it. And then all of a sudden you just sort of, you're spiraling down on some crazy thing, you know, and just, and, and all of a sudden you can't pull your life together. I mean, fame and fortune and notoriety and all that can kill you. Mm. And I, even Debbie and I remember talking about it when I, when the success started to come, I remember, Debbie and I talking and I remember looking at her going, you know what, if this thing continues to sort of escalate, there's a better chance of us being a casualty than not. And I am not going to let that happen to my family and we're going to make some rules. So I just made rules. I just never gone away from my family more than two weeks. Hmm. Uh, I made family the most important thing. Um, I love being a father much more than a singer. You know, I mean, yeah. I know that's what I'm called to do, and I, I know that's my sweet spot. But I, I love. I think if you and I got such a great relationship with my kids. I think if you would interview my kids, I think they would probably tell you that they were more important to me than my career. Mm. So that's a really good word. So saying all of that, yeah, I survived, I've survived it after 39 years. Yeah. And I want to con- and I want to continue to sur- survive success. If, if the su- success continues to come my way, I just want to keep it all in perspective. And a lot of that's been a great wife. My gosh, we've been married forty years this September. That's awesome. A great that's so prayer cool. group. Great prayer group. My mentor, Fento, just people. Who who are you surround yourself with to do life? Mm, that's such a great word. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now even in, in kind of Christian world about celebrity evangelicals and how, you know, it's kind of toxic and leadership and all that. And it's, I just have to say, it's refreshing to see the way that you've lived and, you know, your passion for the Lord after all these years, um, you know, your desire to see revival, uh, all, all of that is really refreshing. I think uh, when we, you know, you, we look around and we, we have friends or we see people who, were Christians who are pretty well known who fell or just kind of got into trouble. So it's, it's yeah. refreshing to see folks that haven't, right? Yeah, it is. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah. I have a lot of friends who are, who wandered as well. It's, it's, and it says that will happen. If the book, the book says it's going to happen mm-hmm. in the last days, people yeah. they'll wander and they'll walk away from the faith. And gosh, I don't ever want that to happen to me, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I, I mentioned that, you know, the, the first decade album, you know, was just like such a big thing for me, you know, uh, when I was in high school and just kind of wore that thing out that's, you know, we had CDs and wore it out in our car. Um, yeah. But there was a, I, I've loved your worship stuff too. And it seems like there was a turn. I don't even know when, but it seems like you've always done worship stuff, but it seemed like there was a turn and maybe it was a conscious thing to do more worship albums. Was, was that something that you just felt like the Lord wanted you to do? at that kind of point in your career, um, 
you know, maybe, maybe talk about. about yeah, that. that that was 2001. That was really, you know, I, I was a worship leader for 19 years at Belmont church on music row. 19 years before I ever did a, what you would call a, a vertical record, you know, which was that first worship album, which came out on 9-11, I might add. Um, I actually redid that record that's coming out on 9-11 with a mm. full symphony, full symphony orchestra. Oh, that's great. It's a top five. It entered my top five of all time. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, you'll cry and you'll shout and you'll cry. Mm. Uh, no rhythm section, just full symphony orchestra, mm. all those songs. But whatever. It was inspired by an event we were having at the Ryman Auditorium. We thought the GMA and just all the people coming together, we just kind of felt like we kind of lost our way and a lot of ego and Somebody asked me, going, why don't we start the whole thing with a worship service? That sort of set, set the tone. And we did. And it was like off the chart. Mm. And then I kept getting woken up every like every two, three weeks going for such a time as this. And I'll keep saying no. Like three weeks later for such a time as this. No. And then a big, loud voice. I mean, loud voice. Like God was saying for such a time as this. I want you to go make that record. What you did at the Ramen. I want you to make, make that record. Mm. And I thought it would be the least successful record of my career. And I thought, you know what? Obedience is better than sacrifice. I'm just going to do it. And I did it with lots of joy. And I was, I got excited about it. And I picked out what I thought maybe were the best 10, 11, 12 worship songs. And, and that record was released on 9-11 and ends up being the most successful record of my career all around the world. Mm. Never well, that time been. after 9-11, there was a kind of moment there, wasn't there, where people were thinking spiritually for a bit, it seemed like. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Your country's been attacked. And and I think that's on some level, uh, I think that record was a go-to record for a lot of people. And I mean, all I can figure out, you know, that it just was, it just seemed people kept going to that worship album for some reason. So Uh, I want to ask you a little bit. I know you, you've, uh, there's a couple of folks that you've, had a chance to know really well. Uh, I'm a huge, I, lo- I love reading about presidents and uh, I love the Bush family personally and reading about them. And I know you were pretty good friends with George H.W. Bush. Uh, and I've, I've read most of the biographies of him, but maybe talk about your relationship with him. Yeah. I just, I met him in 1989 when I was doing a Christmas special for NBC and they were on the front row, met him before the show it was crazy. And then all of a sudden you're invited to the white house after the show. And there I am with Vic Damone and Diane Carroll and Olivia Newton-John and leading Christmas carols, all that Steinway piano in the East Room. And and he just started sending me notes in the mail, like, hey, let me know when you're in D.C. Got to come by and see me. I'm going like, this guy doesn't have anything else to do. <laughs> run a country. And and so I we just picked, developed a friendship. And it was a great friendship really sweet, sweet people. They love Debbie. They love my wife, Debbie. And, and we, gosh, we vacationed together for years and we just, yeah, we, it was matter of fact, the last thing he's about three, four months before he passed, the last thing he said to me, and I was with him in Kenny Buckport because he loved the song friends. So we're there to say goodbye. And all of a sudden we're walking out and he grabs my hand. He says, friends are friends forever. That's the last, that's the last thing he said to me. That's awesome. I I love when you played at the funeral, uh, friends of friends forever. I thought that was pretty cool. And, you know, I know the story of how that song came up, but 
you probably never envisioned you'd be playing that at a presidential state funeral. <laughs> no, I did not. No, yeah. That was special. I had a, I didn't sing it very well. I was kind of emotional just trying to get through it, you know, cause I, I, I know how much he'd loved that song. He, you know, I've read so much about him and he seemed like such a warm hearted person oh, uh, who really loved people. Just, just, it was never about him. Just wanting to, wanting to serve, do whatever you wanted to do. So never talked yeah. about his accomplishments. If he did, mm-hmm. he changed, he changed the subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just that's cra- great. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and kind of an outdated style of leadership. You almost wish we had leadership like that today. Yeah. Um, you you also knew Billy Graham pretty well, right? Or did you get to know Billy Graham pretty pretty well? And I maybe did. talk about your relationship great, with him. Just a great friend. Just I think we had a lot in common. Uh, on so, you know, the five kids. We got five kids. He's traveling. I'm traveling. I think we really got to be close when we did the first when we did the first youth night, which was 1994, Cleveland Stadium, and. Mm-hmm. Something that he was adamant about doing, and no, you know, I think his team was really concerned about it. They they didn't want him to do it. This is like getting ready of what you all do every Saturday night, and what do you mean you're going to have a rock concert? You know, it's like, <laughs> but he 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 knew they need to change the programming up to reach the next generation. So that first October 1994, it was me and DC Talk, and that was one of many. And we just connected, especially from then on, and then just to be able to go see him in his home, and then. Him praying over me every time. It's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then the last two, three times, he doesn't have the energy. He's out of it. I'd set my piano up beside him and sing all his favorite hymns. And then I'd end up praying mm. over him, which mm. was just like, whoa. Wow. And um, yeah, he's a great man. I miss, I still miss him. And, yeah, um, I do great, too. Great, my, great for that friendship. My father went forward at the 1971 crusade in Chicago. Wow. Wow. And uh, that's awesome. really cha- changed the trajectory of our whole family. Really? That like I'm so awesome. I'm, I'm following Christ really because of that. I'm the, I'm the fruit of that. So just, just thankful for his ministry. I, I only got a couple of questions off because I know uh, your time is limited, but I'm just thankful for you to join me. Uh, you're also friends with our, the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee. I've read a little bit about that and I, yes. I'm a, I like governor Lee a lot and just maybe talk about your relationship with him and how that's, developed through the years yeah we've just been friends for 38 years and uh, we've been mm-hmm. in a prayer group for 33 years wow and so a great That's really cool a great great friend yes yeah uh just lastly you know one of the things i've admired about you you've been doing this for almost 40 years as you said uh you're still creating still writing still have real joy uh when, whenever i go see you play uh or uh, saying uh, what what keeps you motivated to continue to write music and and to sing and to you know lead worship and all the things that you're doing uh, after all these years? Yeah, it's a, you know what it's calling. You know, it'd be different if I was tired. It'd be different if I if I if I wasn't writing anything that wasn't worth a flip. You know, what I'm saying I'd be it'd be different if you just feel like I don't have the passion anymore, and that's just not the case. If, if anything, the passion has increased. And I feel the wind at my back and I just want to bring a little kingdom down to the earth, you know, here in these final days, however many days I got left. I hope I can live a long life to see my grandkids and great grandkids. And I just want to finish well. But, yeah, man, I'm just I do feel some momentum. And so I'm very, very grateful. 
Well, I want to thank you, Michael W. Smith, just for your your ministry, your life, uh, the music that has really meant so much to all of us, and um, really for being the real deal all these years later, uh, really is a great example to us. So I just want to thank you for your time as well. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.